You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. You ready to jump into a new book of the Bible? It's a book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. Some of you may have heard of it, many of you not so much. We're going to spend 13 weeks going through it. Let me set it up for you. They are dealing with some cultural, spiritual, economic, practical circumstances that will sound very familiar. I believe that God's word is timeless. This particular book will be timely. Here's what they're dealing with. Tell me if this sounds at all familiar. Number one, they have a godless, corrupt, overbearing government that God's people were unhappy with. So they were frustrated. They're living under the rule of the Persian Empire. These people don't know God. They don't love God. They don't serve God. They are creating policies that make it hard for God's people to enjoy faith, freedom, and family. In addition, they were in the middle of an economic downturn and decline. They had a hard time making ends meet. And the middle class in particular was filling the inflation pinch. Sound familiar? Number three, the culture was against them. It was a corrupt, hostile culture indoctrinating their children. This was, there was terrible entertainment. God's people were inundated all the time with everything they saw on their phone to every single aisle of Target was against them. In addition, the media had a negative narrative against their faith. Every time a faith leader said or did anything, they were under attack. And so the result was, here they are as exiles. Many of God's people had scattered. They were living in horrible cities that made it difficult to worship God and raise their kids and be normal. And then the problem was, the church wasn't faring well. Much of the church, in that course of that time, it was the temple, but it was like modern day church. Much of the church had become apostate. Teaching was compromised. Leaders were corrupted. There was just this epidemic of wokeism that they had embraced, this Persian, horrible, godless demonic agenda. So here's the good news. There was a small group of people who were faithful, who did love and serve the Lord. The text is going to refer to them as a remnant, a small group that realizes this isn't going well. We are surrounded. We're we're outnumbered. We do love the Lord, but it is difficult for us to exercise our faith. It is difficult for us to lead our family because everything and everyone is against our freedom to do so. Now, before we get into the storyline of the book, let me say that there was one other cultural detail in Nehemiah that is also a very significant part of the storyline is that the wall around the city had been torn down. It was not there so that they could defend themselves against enemy invasion. So 
in first dealing with the message of Nehemiah. Let me explain the book. We're going to be in it for several weeks. The 13 chapters will take one chapter a week, plain and simple. Now, a contemporary of Nehemiah was a man named Ezra, also an Old Testament book that bears his name. Nehemiah and Ezra work about the same time on the same project. They're like right hand, left hand. They're complementing each other. Nehemiah does more of the practical hands-on ministry work, where Ezra does more of the teaching and preaching ministry. Both are godly men. And God's going to use them to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple so that it can be filled with people. And he can fill it with his own presence so that God's people could come into his presence to worship, pray, to sing. But a lot of the book of Nehemiah is simply his personal journal entries. So chapters 1 and 7 are literally his journal entries. Chapter 13 is his journal entry. You're going to see him fast and pray and journal. He's a profoundly spiritual man. Even though what he's doing doesn't seem so spiritual on the surface, I mean, this is a guy who's in charge of the construction project. He's doing security detail at the same time and budget forecasting, but all under the power of the Holy Spirit. And what he's going to do is this. He's going to pray and he's going to plan. And then he's going to journal out his prayers and his plan. So that's the message of Nehemiah the mess and the mission of Nehemiah. Here's the big idea. God blesses his people to bless other people. God blesses us to be a blessing. God doesn't just have us enjoy the blessing just for ourselves, but to then be a blessing and share the blessing. The problem in Nehemiah's time is this. God has blessed his people, but they were not blessing other people. God had been giving to them, but they had not been sharing with others. They're not being generous. They're not sharing hope in God. They're not sharing Bible teaching. They're taking everything that God has provided for them, and they're just hoarding it. They're not sharing it. As God has provided for them to share with others, they're being very selfish. As a result, they grew very entitled. They had lived under God's blessing and provision for so long. They're like, well, we'll always get God's provision. We'll always be safe because God is there for us. We'll always have affluence and wealth because God always provides for us. Well, what happens is some people live under God's blessing so long, they don't see it as God's blessing. They just think, well, this is normal, right? It's not normal life. It's supernatural life. And I would say that the decline and decay in Israel at that time is something similar to what we're experiencing in America today. Peace, prosperity, freedom. And then a bunch of people become lazy, self-indulgent, entitled, no longer making sacrifices for God or for the good of others. And the result is that God has sent a succession of prophets to warn people. He's like, hey, I love you. I care about you. I'm blessing you. But what you're doing, it's unacceptable in my sight. 
they weren't worshiping God. They weren't giving to God. They weren't serving God. They weren't sharing God's love with others. What we would say in our day is that they were not pointing others to Jesus. Sometimes people live in rebellion against God and still say they believe in God. They think, well, God must be fine with the way I'm living because he hasn't done anything to me. And then all of a sudden, everything changes one day. And God removes his hand of blessing and anointing. He does that in the days of Daniel. We looked at the story of Daniel maybe two years ago. And in Daniel, there is judgment and justice and because there is the destroying of the nation and the destroying of the temple. The people in Daniel's day were invaded. They were overtaken. They were enslaved. Just to remind you, in a combination of Babylonian and Persian empires, they came to Jerusalem and they tore down the house of the Lord. They burned the temple to the ground. The place where God's people would come in God's presence and sing praises. But guess what? The people didn't care about God. They had sort of a religious fakery. They would kind of look at the church like a country club mindset. Hey, it's always there for me. It looks pretty. I don't really care. I'm not really devoted to God. I I don't really make sacrifices. I'm kind of indifferent. I pretend and play at religion a bunch. I like to look like a good moral citizen. I just like that building being there, just in case I ever wanted to show up. And it's just God saying, okay, if you're not going to actually worship me, then I'll let the entire building be burned to the ground. And God's people are like, oh my gosh. God's like, you weren't worshiping me anyway. The story of Daniel would go on to say that the houses of Jerusalem were burned down. The leaders' homes were destroyed. The invading army destroyed the walls around Jerusalem. They burned the church to the ground. The houses of the leaders burned to the ground. The gates ripped off the walls. The walls left in ruin. It's not a fortified city anymore. And the invading army just leaves. Well, in addition to the place being in ruins, the people had shame. They were embarrassed. They're like, look at our once great city. Look at our once great nation. Look at what a, our once great culture. Look at our once great nation. What a total disaster. A free fall collapse. That's what they were feeling what many of you are feeling and the result was apostasy they professed a faith that they did not practice they gave lip service but not lifestyle as we get into the book of Nehemiah you're going to see that they begin worshiping false gods they don't really care about the one true God of the Bible they've stopped giving they've stopped praying they stopped caring they stopped trying And God gets particularly upset and frustrated with the men because they are not leading and loving their families. The men are marrying unbelieving women. They are raising unbelieving children. And they're letting their kids be raised by culture and government that was against God. 
Sound familiar? Now, not everyone. There was a remnant, a faithful few who did love and serve God. The majority, they professed faith. They did not practice it. Likely, they did not possess it. Fast forward to today. Pew Research did a study about a year ago and said until recently, last few decades, upwards of 90% of Americans were Christian. And now it's in great decline. And that's not really that much of a profound statement anymore. I mean, do you think, just look at America. Does it feel like 90% of us are filled with the Spirit, obeying the Word, following Jesus? And what we're seeing is mass generational apostasy where even churches don't believe the Bible. Where even churches are going, not going to adhere to biblical categories. Here's the truth. There is God and Satan. There is heaven and hell. There is right and wrong. There is truth and lies. There are male and female. There are some things that are fixed. Well, all of a sudden, it's like many Christian churches believe and behave the same way as non-Christians. The point is God's people, we are supposed to be a counter-cultural remnant. We're supposed to believe what the Bible says. And then lovingly, graciously, I repeat, lovingly, graciously, that's our mandate. We're not going to hate anybody into the kingdom. Lovingly and graciously stand against the cultural current of the world. saying, This is not the way. This is not God's way. I invite you to live a better way under the authority of God and his word. And when God's people don't believe the Bible... And God's people don't teach the Bible. And God's people don't agree with God. That's apostasy. It's what was happening in the days of Nehemiah. It's why they were overtaken. It's why they were destroyed. It's why everything went south so painfully and so suddenly. Let me read the entire text of chapter 1 and then we'll get into a little bit more. Here's Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah son of Hekeliah, in the month of Keslev, this is like December-ish, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that's Israel, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah then speaks. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, he starts his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. 
we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's going to be talking about the king in just a minute. He closes his prayer, and then he says these last words. I was cupbearer to the king. Here's the big idea. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa. This is the capital city of the Persian Empire. And he gets a report of what's happening in Jerusalem 850 miles away. And when he finds out what's going on, he is devastated. He is heartbroken. He is emotionally crushed. And we will discover that he spends three to four months just broken in prayer and fasting and weeping and seeking God's heart. A couple of questions. Number one, what have you become numb to? Here's the crazy fact that changes our entire understanding of the story of Nehemiah. How long had Jerusalem been destroyed? 141 years. Why does Nehemiah get emotional about it now? Not because he has new information. Because he has a new perspective. He suddenly sees as God sees. You know, we get to a point where things seem normal to us. Things have been this way for so long and we think it can't be any other way. Question two, what breaks your heart? Hearing that the church is closed, the worship of God has ceased, it breaks Nehemiah's heart. Two and a half months ago, the Associated Press ran a story about all the empty churches and cathedrals in Europe. Here's a quote from that story. Across Europe, the continent that nurtured Christianity for most of two millennia, churches, convents, and chapels stand empty and increasingly derelict as faith and church attendance shriveled over the past half century. Now let me say this, God doesn't need a house, but God's people need a house. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. Now the good news here is that there is a remnant remaining, meaning there's a small group of people who still do love God and they wanna see things change. You know what they really need? A leader. And Nehemiah stands as an example of a godly, business-savvy, politically wise leader who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. He stands up there with Moses and Joshua and Daniel, and he leads God's people. 
So let's talk a little bit about Nehemiah the man. We don't know much about his family. We get his father's name and one, at least one of his brother's names in that first chapter. And the chapter ended with that one strange statement after his prayer, I was cupbearer to the king. What this means is he's a Jew. He's a worshiper of God. He's living in Persia, the capital city of Susa. And he's serving King Artaxerxes, a godless, horrible, evil man. He's such a brutal guy that he wasn't supposed to be king. His brother was supposed to be king. So he murdered his brother so he could become king. On a few occasions, there were coup attempts. And he was a bloodthirsty, murderous man who put them all down. In recorded history... There are at least four Persian kings who took the throne by assassination. There were six more who took it through political coups and intrigue. So if you're the king, you're kind of paranoid. They didn't have elections. They needed people closest to them that they could incredibly trust. They needed people in their cabinet that they could entrust their lives to. That included this man, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Now, here's how that worked. You might think you got a bad job. Here's his job. Everybody's trying to kill the king. So as cupbearer, you drink the wine first. If you're still living, the king then gets to drink the wine. It's not poisoned after all. That's Nehemiah's job. So Nehemiah is one of the most trustworthy men in the entire kingdom. He doesn't believe in their pagan religions. He's not a true citizen of their nation. He's a slave that was taken hostage generations prior as a prisoner of war, but he is faithful. And you know why? Because he doesn't just serve King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He serves the king of kings. And that allows him to be humble and godly toward the human king. The big idea is this. No matter who you work for, ultimately, you work for Jesus. That's biblical. That's who you worked for. So because he maintained integrity, he earned trust that was going to give him opportunities in the future. You know, a lot of people are like, I, I don't know why I don't have opportunities today. Maybe it's because you didn't have character yesterday. Nehemiah doesn't know what God's going to use him for, how God's going to use him, when God's going to use him, but he just does the right thing. And the reason why he wants Jerusalem secure Get the temple open, as we'll find out later in the Old Testament. That's where God in Jesus Christ is going to come. In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says that Jesus is going to come to his temple in Jerusalem. That means we need to get Jerusalem set up. We need to get the temple set up so Jesus can go there. All the Old Testament prophets also said that Jesus would be God visiting this planet. 
and for a particular reason, to deal with our sin problem, that he would live without sin, that he would die in Jerusalem, be buried in Jerusalem, that he would rise from death in Jerusalem. He'd return to heaven and eventually he'll come back and he'll replace the old Jerusalem with a new Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is like, we got to get this place open. That's the message, the mission, and the man named Nehemiah. So where does he start? He starts with prayer. You and I, in today's world, where do we usually start? We start on the internet. We start with social media. Don't bring your problems to the world. Bring your problems to the Lord. He's going to take three or four months, and he's crying, and he's fasting, and he's journaling, and he's frustrated, and he's trying to figure out, how do I pray for this? How do I get God's will? How, how do I implement and plan and carry out God's will? We'll talk about this more as we get into Nehemiah, but he starts with praying. He gets God's vision, and then he gets into planning. This prayer that we just read is the first of nine prayers in 13 chapters. And he prays for three or four months. There are just some things you got to work out. You can't rush. So let's take a deeper dive into the prayer. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's starting by praising God. Let me say this, don't start with your problem, start with praise, because here's the good news. God isn't your problem. So when you pray, you're realizing, oh God, you're not the problem, I'm going to bring you my problems. So I'm going to praise you first. And if you're younger, I love you, this will be a little bit of a course correction for you. You know so much more about yourself than you do, God, that you love and serve because we are taught from an early age that we are the center. Therefore, the most important thing is to discover who you are. Be true to yourself. Truth is, you are important, but you're of secondary importance. Of primary importance is who God is. So when you start with praise, here's what you're suddenly doing. You're thinking about God. You're involving God, the one who is the highest authority, the God who rules over all, the one who makes a promise and keeps it, the God whose steadfast love never fails. And then he talks about repenting of sin. The next two verses. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Here's what Nehemiah says. We're not victims, we're villains. Let me tell you, if you read your Bible and you're like, you know, I read it, I looked at Jesus, man, he's just like me. Go back and read it again, you missed some things. 
ultimately by repenting? What we're saying is my beliefs and my behaviors disagree with God. And when we deviate in our beliefs and our behaviors from the word of God, the Bible calls that sin. It's rebellion. It's wrong. He said in his prayer that God is faithful to those who covenant with him. If you maintain covenant with him, he's going to bless you and be faithful to you. I'll give you an example. A lot of people would wonder, why does God not bless me? Why why is he not blessing my life? I hear God blesses, but think about this. To the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus spoke about living water. You know what that is? That's planting your life near God's word. God's word is the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit that comes from God, and that's God's blessings being poured out onto your life. So some people are like, well, I planted my dating relationship far away from the living water. Why is it withering? Well, my marriage, you know, we don't pray and we don't worship God. Why is it not flourishing? We didn't raise our kids to include them in a community of God's people, the church. Why are they not blossoming? My business has nothing to do with God. Why is it struggling? And covenant relationship with God means acknowledging God. There are entire aspects of my life that are not close to you. There are beliefs and behaviors that are disobedient. And you know the reason that their life is withering and struggling? It's because they have planted everything from their money to their ministry to their marriage far away from God's word. And then he prays this. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, you told us that if we rebel, it's not going to go well for us. But if we return to you, that's repentance, that you would pull us in close to you once again. Next verse. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He is yearning for God's blessing, and he's like, God, we have sinned, but it's not too late. God, we have done evil, but you can still turn it around. God, we have failed you, but you never fail us. God, we have made this very difficult, but you are the God of the impossible. I I just feel like I need to pause here. 
Maybe some of you are feeling this way. That I, man, I've blown it. Man, I have failed you so many times, God. Maybe that failing has been, I haven't even opened this. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I read anything in here. And I want to know that this is all true. And God, if I could, if I open my life to you, would you come in? I'll give you the answer to that. The answer is a resounding yes. You pray that prayer. You pray, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to move into my life. I want to live for you. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but I want you beside me. You can pray that prayer right in the quiet of your heart right now. And look, if after the service, you've got questions, you want to know, hey, look, I did that. What do I do next? Or, look, I'm really struggling. What, where do I start? Where do I start with Bible reading? What, can you pray for me? Man, what an ideal time for this. We've got a luncheon. You're going to stick around. I am too. Nehemiah is journeying for God's blessings and his provision. And I want to show you just two things here. Number one, the word servant. He uses that word eight times in this prayer. And what he's saying is, God, whatever you want, whatever you say, whatever you ask, that's the key to changing. In addition, what he's praying for is that the remnant would become a revival. God, there's just a few of us, but we're here to serve you. And God, we praise you. Ultimately, we repent of our sin. We agree with your word, and we're asking you to show up in power and take this remnant into a revival. That's the only hope for Western culture. That's the only hope for our country, that the remnant becomes a revival. If you continue to read Nehemiah, which we will, there will be a revival by the end. This is our hope. And a revival is where a lot of people get saved and people who are lukewarm become red hot for the Lord, where people who are doing religion all of a sudden come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. We're somewhere in the middle, I believe. Our church started 84 years ago with 31 charter members. Things are going pretty well. And what we want to do is not just study the book of Nehemiah. We want to live the book of Nehemiah. We want to do what they did in the areas that God is calling us. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Pray for our church and pray for yourself. Pray for our church that God would lead us and guide us and provide for us as he always does. And pray for yourself. God, what is my part? Nehemiah here is praying. He's like, Lord, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to do? And I'll close with this. 
my hope and prayer and goal is to lead well. And as this world gets crazy, and you have a hard time taking your kids to certain places, and let's just be honest, sometimes you're a little nervous to turn on the TV or hand them a screen. As this world continues to get darker, let's have our church become a little brighter. Let this be a place where men are built to bless women and children, where women are encouraged and loved and safe, where children have fun and learn about Jesus, where lives and legacies are being transformed. Let's turn this church over to God in prayer and build our future in him. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.